But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. And now Linda is going to come and speak to us from out of that passage. Let's pray for Linda as she comes. Lord God, be here by your spirit. Inspire Linda in what she says and prepare our hearts to hear your voice and your message speaking through her. We pray that uh, we will be good listeners to the message she's prepared for us this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. If you could just go to the back and check the slides are in the right, that would be great. Thank you so much. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back here Nigel and I this morning worshipping with you and also to make a contribution to the um, series that you've been looking at and I'm just going to raise this slightly because it's slightly low for me. I know I'm not that tall but even so, there we go. Great. So you've been looking at a series on life together in community based around the three persons of the Trinity And its series um, is designed to help us better understand how the life that we share as God's people is to be modelled on and shaped by the relationship that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if the slides are in the right order, and if the clicker works, here we go, here we go. I tried to find the logo that's been used uh, for this series, but uh, couldn't quite download it from the website, so I found one of my own, which David reassured me was close enough. Um, It's perhaps important to note that the Trinity is not actually mentioned as such in the Bible. It's a word that was coined by the Christian church in the third century 
to try and express the Christian understanding of the three persons of God as distinct but divinely interrelated, as this image shows. So our understanding of the Trinity, in as much as we can understand it, reflects what God's people experienced and came to believe as God revealed himself in both the Old Testament and the New Testament and in the life of the Christian church down the centuries. Images and metaphors such as this one behind me can sometimes help us to understand spiritual truths when words seem to fall short. I've got another image that I found quite helpful. This visual picture has helped me to think about and to appreciate the Trinity. It's a picture of three little African figures that I bought in South Africa many, many years ago. Each one separate in their individual identity, but they're all made of pottery and they're all clothed in similar but not identical clothing. They are my people of the blanket because the blanket is very much part of a South African life. They represent for me something of the closeness but the distinctiveness of the three persons of the Trinity. So in the first of the series, two weeks ago, David explained how God is essentially invisible and transcendent or unknowable, so far beyond our human understanding that we cannot hope to grasp the breadth and the depth of who God is and what he does, even though some artists down the centuries have tried hard to capture something of God's transcendent power and majesty. And some of you may recognise this slide, a picture by William Blake of God way above, far from human existence, transcendent in power and majesty. And yet, at the same time, as David commented, God is imminent. He chooses to be close to us in a way that a loving parent is close to a child. So God is both almighty creator and sustainer, the one who gives us life as part of his living creation. And yet he also chooses to nurture an intimate relationship with us as a loving and forgiving father. There's a well-known 19th century hymn of praise which expresses this mystery in the following words, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. The hymn writer's words echo the vision of God that the prophet Ezekiel recounted, which was a reading two weeks ago. But the final verse of the hymn addresses God as great father, of glory, pure Father of light. And it ends with the beautiful words, Oh, help us to see, tis only the splendour of light hideth thee. God the Father. Last week, Paul Whittle was with you, and he focused on the person of Jesus, God the Son whom Paul the Apostle described in two of his letters to the early Christian churches as the image of the invisible God. 
The writer of the letter to the Hebrews also spoke of Jesus the Son as being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And Jesus himself said to Philip, one of his first disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And if anyone should ask you, how is it possible to know what God is like, then point them to Jesus. Show them Jesus. Introduce them to God's Son as we see him in the Gospels, especially the Jesus who came to love and serve others. God the Father, God the Son. And this week we consider the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Firstly, who the Holy Spirit is, and secondly, what the Holy Spirit does. Our reading from Galatians this morning tells us something about what the Holy Spirit does. So we'll come back to that a little bit later. But let's first think about who the Holy Spirit is. And to do this, it's perhaps helpful to go back to what Jesus himself said about the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to build a little on Paul Whittle's use last week of chapter 17 in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, chapters 13 all the way through to 17, we read of the shared conversations that Jesus had with his disciples on the evening before he was arrested and subsequently tried and crucified. You might like to have the relevant passages open in front of you in your Bibles from about page 1020. 1020. In an upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples have gathered together around a table by candlelight to share a meal. It will be their last meal together before the events of Good Friday. In the course of the evening, Jesus talks with his disciples about what is to come. They have no idea at this point. And he shares some important teaching with them, using both word and action. Jesus washes their feet to show what service of one another and servant leadership looks like. He warns of future betrayal and denial by those who claim to know and love him. And he does all this with a sense of urgency, for Jesus knows he has little time left to pass on to his friends the wisdom and the truths they will need once they are parted from him. We can probably imagine the disciples' sudden distress and panic at the prospect of Jesus leaving them so unexpectedly at this point in a successful ministry. And Jesus is not insensitive to their feelings. He gently tries to explain that his return to God the Father is necessary. It is in line with his Father's plan. 
Jesus has almost completed the work that his father gave him to do, and that work will now pass on to all those who recognize Jesus as the Son of God and who respond to his invitation to participate in God's mission to the world. But we can imagine the disciples looking anxiously at one another around the table and saying, but Jesus, we're not ready. We can't, we can't do it without you. You've always been there to help, to guide, to explain when we didn't understand, even though you sometimes got cross with us, to keep us on the right track. We've always followed your lead. And if you leave us now, we'll lose our way. Jesus reassures his friends that they will not be left abandoned like orphans. He promises to ask his father to send someone else like him to be with them, someone called the Holy Spirit. So what sort of person is this Holy Spirit whom the Father will send? Well, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the advocate, or in some other translations, the counsellor. Someone who advises you and stands beside you in a legal case. Someone who can help you in difficult circumstances. For the Holy Spirit carries the authority and status of God himself and is therefore empowered by God to stand alongside God's people, to help them and even defend them from accusation and harm, just like a counsellor or an advocate in a courtroom. Jesus also speaks of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, someone who can point a blind and sceptical world to the truth about God the Father and about God the Son. So in this sense, the Holy Spirit is like a wise tutor or a mentor who, and to understand and who will remind them of all that they learned during their time with Jesus, God the Son. So Jesus' words to his disciples seem to be saying, don't worry, don't be anxious, you will not be alone. My father and I will make sure that someone just like me lives in and is at work through you in the same way as my father lives in and works through me. I once heard someone refer to the Holy Spirit as the presence of Jesus in the absence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus in the... And I've always found that phrase very meaningful and helpful. The separation that would take place between Jesus and his disciples, first through the crucifixion and later on when Jesus returned to his father, was very real. After the resurrection, Jesus was physically present with his disciples in a new and powerful way until ascension when he finally returned to be with his father.
But at Pentecost, a new power and presence from God entered the lives of all Jesus' followers. It was the power and presence of Jesus for the continuing work of the Father and the Son. Of course, the Holy Spirit had been at work throughout the Old Testament. From the very start of time, when the Spirit hovered or brooded over the creation of the world like a bird, right through the individual lives of Old Testament kings and prophets who were inspired by the breath of God to bring his message to the people. But after the resurrection, God's presence and power were released in a new and exciting way for all God's people, just as the prophet Joel had foreseen. David began, and I'm so pleased he did because I had it down here as well, which suggests the Holy Spirit was at work in our own planning, although we had not collaborated on that particular point. But the Holy Spirit is the breath of God, the Ruach, that inspires all believers, all followers of Jesus, enabling us to enjoy a close family relationship with God as Father and with Jesus, his Son, as brother. The Holy Spirit enables us to recognize ourselves as the children of a Father God. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the confidence to call him Abba, Daddy. It's the Holy Spirit who breathes into us the resurrection life of Jesus and who stirs Jesus in all of our being. It is the ongoing work of God, and it lasts the whole of our lifetime. Our reading from Galatians today highlights the role of the Holy Spirit in walking alongside us as an advocate or counsellor to shape the way we live and the way we behave towards one another in a Christ-like manner. We are called to live by the Spirit. If we looked closely in the Greek, we'd see that that means we are called to walk in line with and keep in step with the Spirit. Just as the first disciples themselves did with the person of Jesus as they walked those dusty roads in first century Palestine. Walking in step with the spirit of Jesus, walking in his direction of travel and at his pace, means we will always stay close to Jesus and be less likely to wander off into unhelpful or dangerous territory. This is another picture that I love. It's an ancient icon showing Jesus with one of his followers. I love it because Jesus is standing side by side with his friend, his disciple, and he has his arm round his disciple's shoulder. 
And if you walk with somebody in that way, you have to walk close to them and you have to walk at the pace at which they are going. Because if you don't, you will drift apart. And Jesus himself used exactly this sort of picture when he spoke of taking upon us his yoke and learning from him. In the way in which a younger ox is yoked to an older, more experienced ox, who is the lead animal in the pair, setting the direction and speed of travel in the field. It's really important to understand that we cannot experience the process of becoming more like Jesus on our own, in isolation. It's a process that has to happen within our local Christian community. And as in any human family, it's not always easy. And it's not always comfortable. But the community of the church, locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally, is the place where we get to practice walking in step with Jesus and becoming more like him. The Galatians passage highlights for us the dangers of not walking in step with the Holy Spirit, as well as the blessings which can result from allowing ourselves to be led by the Spirit. So I wonder what the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is saying to you today. What might the Holy Spirit be drawing your attention to through Paul's words in his letter to the Galatians? Is it the biblical command that Jesus himself affirmed and demonstrated, serve one another humbly in love? Love your neighbor as yourself. Or is it the sober warning? If you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out or you will be destroyed by one another? Or is it the plea from the heart? Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Or perhaps you are challenged by that long list of character virtues which the Holy Spirit seeks to grow in our lives so that they will blossom and bear fruit to bless us, to bless God's people and to bless God's world. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. I wonder which one of these you struggle with. Patience? Faithfulness? Self-control? Which ones are urgently needed in your relationships, with your family, 
with your neighbours, with your work colleagues, with your fellow disciples here at Camborne Church. And as you reflect on the challenges Paul sets us to become more like Jesus, do not be afraid to ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you, just like his first disciples, can walk more closely with Jesus day by day. How you too can stay in step with Jesus' direction and speed of travel. And may the Holy Spirit guide our footsteps and lead us all on as we journey with Jesus.